good morning. It's good to see you all. This is a <clears throat> special day, <clears throat> especially for all Americans, April 15th. Uh, it's also a special day because it's my son's birthday today. Um, so you can bug him about that. He, he loves the attention. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, it is a special day because we get to gather together today. So April 15th is a good day because we are here. Um, and in celebration of this, this fine day, we're going to have a, a, a fellowship service tonight that uh, all of us, all of you are encouraged to, to go to. And tonight will be a little extra special because we're going to also incorporate a potluck into that time together uh, starting at 6 o'clock. So it will be a normal start time, but we're going to eat together first. Uh, and it, so bring bring some food, clear out your fridge, get rid of the leftovers, bring them on down. But make sure to bring extra, because we will have some college students there, and they don't bring nothing. So, you know, <laughs> care for them in that way. Minister to, to other parts of our body. So bring a little extra. Uh, again, show up 6 o'clock. We're going to have a time of singing together. Um, Jeff Lernan's going to share his testimony, and we'll have a time of fellowship. So uh, make sure to be a part of that. Also, too, this is the last day to sign up, ladies, for the Women's Conference this next weekend. Uh, make sure you do that. You can sign up out front, and I think online you can still do that, but today is your uh, last day from what I am told. Also, too, just want to remind you, uh, April 29th, in a few weeks, we're going to have our barbecue bonanza. Yes, it is exciting as it sounds. Barbecue bonanza. We're going to meet together after second hour, have some hamburgers, hot dogs together, and just spend some time uh, with one another. So set that time aside. And Important announcement I want to uh, let you know about this morning is the first weekend in May, Friday night, Saturday morning, we're going to be having a purity conference. Uh, we normally have that that focused uh, out of the youth ministry and focused on youth, but the last few years we've been encouraging everybody in the body to come because as Mike said, uh, that issue of purity and morality is not just facing our young people, is it? Satan hasn't just segmented that part of our um, humanity off. He's focused on all of us. And if there's anything in the last several decades in America we've seen is uh, the rise of immorality. It is the new drug. So I would encourage all of you, whether you're young or old, single, single or married, uh, to come to that. Um, it'll be focused on, on, on many things in that regard. John Richard's going to be coming and he's going to be uh, teaching and we're going to have a, a breakout time for the youth. Uh, junior high and high school will be in the breakout groups and then that, during that time we'll have a Q&A uh, for the adults. So we've scoured the planet, found some experts in this area and they happen to be a part of our church and so we're going to have them uh, encourage us and, and answer all the tough questions. And I'm not on the panel so I'm going to think up some really good ones. Um, so be, be a part of that, May 4th and 5th, Friday evening and Saturday morning. Uh, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for today. It is a special day. Every day is because, uh, Lord, you have made it and you sustain us and give us life. Uh, Lord, you are uh, intimately involved with all your creation every day. Uh, Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together as a family, Lord, brothers and sisters, and your son to, to celebrate all that you have done and to, Lord, be refreshed and renewed to go out in the week and live for you. And pray, Lord, for um, just uh, those in our body who are suffering, struggling with physical or spiritual uh, struggles. Lord, too, I think of the evangelism team that goes out every Saturday night and, and Lord, their uh, desire to proclaim your word to the lost and just the many dangers that they face and the persecution. I pray, Lord, you would continue to strengthen them and bring others, 
Lord, to participate in that wonderful ministry of your word, uh, Lord, to the lost. I pray, too, now for our time in your word that, that Lord, you would be the one speaking, that you would be the one that, um, that we hear, and, Lord, that you would be the one that we desire to serve in response to what we hear. Thank you again in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, how many of you have been to um, Hearst Castle? Most of you have been there? Uh, pretty cool place, isn't it? I've been there a couple times. It's so vast that you really can't see it all in one, one visit, I guess unless you stayed all day and paid, I don't know, several hundred dollars to do all the tours. But um, it's a pretty amazing place. It's located not far from here. If you haven't been there, it's only a couple few hours north of us in San Simeon. It's on 40,000 acres. There are four uh, large houses. One of them is huge. Uh, Casa Grande. It's a castle, really, uh, hence the name, Hearst Castle. Uh, 68,000 square feet. Uh, just enough to fit the family and the pets in. Um, Thirty. Uh, was it 38 bedrooms, 42 bathrooms. And just in case you want to just go in and sit somewhere and go just sit down, there are 14 rooms where you can just sit there. There are sitting rooms. Um, it's a paradise, Mark. I mean, you know, it's amazing. Um, 14 sitting rooms, 42 bathrooms. Now, I can never understand why do we, are there more bathrooms than bedrooms, but uh, it's an amazing place. The grandeur of the estate isn't just in the architecture. It's not just in the, uh, you know, the, the many buildings and rooms and, and all the things that are there, but also the art collection. William Randolph Hearst was an avid art collector and uh, often would, would purchase uh, many pieces of art. So if you love art, there's some things there too to, to go and look at. Um, the story is told by Pastor Warren Wearsby of a time when Hearst had heard about some art that he wanted to purchase, uh, some pieces that he had wanted to acquire, so he sent an agent out to go and find them. Um, and it turns out that after months of searching, the, the agent scoured the planet looking for this art that, uh, that uh, Hearst had wanted to obtain. Uh, he, he finds it, and he comes back to Mr. Hearst, and he said, Mr. Hearst, I found the pieces of art you were looking for. They're in your warehouse. He'd already owned them. They were right under his nose. And uh, I haven't had the opportunity to be able to verify if that really did happen. But it does illustrate a very common occurrence among believers. That we often uh, don't realize the treasures that we have in Christ, even though they are right under our nose. We often don't think about the fact that uh, what God has given us is so much and so rich. We live lives at times that are parched, that uh, we get caught up in these quests to find happiness and blessing, and we already hold the answer. This morning, I want us to focus on one truth. We're going to focus on one reality in the Christian life that if we could just begin to take hold of it, if we could just consistently remind ourselves of it, if we could make every effort to grasp it, to try to understand it, oh, it would transform how we live. It would change how you approach trials. It would change how you approach temptations. It would change your prayer life. It would change your time in the Word. Your whole Christian walk would be altered and transformed. And Paul gives this weighty truth, this weighty doctrine, primarily in two small words, contained throughout the passage we've been looking on the last several weeks in Ephesians 1, 3-14. In those 12 verses, Paul has made a connection between, not what we, a link between what we have and our blessings that God has given us with those two specific words. So I want us to go back to Ephesians 1 this morning. 
Uh, we're going to look again at verses 3 to, four, to 14, and I, I promise today is going to be the, the fifth and final message on this passage. Uh, you know, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin did 17 sermons on this text. Uh, so did Charles Spurgeon. Martin Lloyd-Jones won up them. He did 24. So I think five is reasonable for this, uh, for this passage. There's so much here. But I do want to move on in Ephesians and glean some more truths from it. So as we read this morning, though, and look at the text one more time, I want you to see if you can catch those two words that, that Paul uses to link what we have from our great God. Let me begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory." you catch those two words we had a hint in the title so but in christ right in him or in whom referring to christ nearly every statement nearly every blessing nearly every act of god on our behalf and salvation is linked to those two words in christ bf westcott said if once we realize what these words we are in christ mean we shall know that beneath the surface of life lie depths we cannot fathom Full alike of mystery and hope. You know, we might hear those terms a lot, being in Christ, but they're not a theological curiosity. They're not some spiritual Christian tagline that gets thrown in every so often. It's not a side issue to the Christian life, but it is the Christian life. And Paul, he he grasps that. In fact, more than any other New Testament author, Paul used this phrase consistently and frequently all over the place. In fact, He uses it over 200 times in his letters. The next nearest use of it is in John, and he uses it 24 times. After that, only eight more. So a predominant number of usages are by Paul. And as it turns out, the book of Ephesians, he uses it almost 40 times, twice the frequency of any other letter of Paul's. And here in these 12 verses that we've been focused on, he uses it 10 times. This, this passage that we have is really the hub, the central statement in Scripture on what it means to be in Christ. And it's my desire this morning to focus on that. Just what is it to be in Christ? What does it mean? What does it entail? If it's so important to Paul, then we need to understand how, how is it important to us? It, does, it seems to indicate some union with Christ, but what, what is it beyond that? Ephesians 5.32, Paul talks about our union with Christ and he says in a lot of ways it's a mystery. Uh, There's so much to this term, these two simple words, in and Christ, but when placed together, have a huge and tremendous 
uh, effect, impact. There's huge depth to what they teach, what they mean. But because it is a mystery, as with many things in scriptures, many have tried to explain these things with erroneous ideas. Some have seen it as a metaphysical union. That is, that in some way we, we receive the divine essence of Jesus and, and in part basically become like God. That's not it. Some have emphasized this as purely and solely a mystical union. That, that Jesus, is, when he arose, he, he became a, as a spirit. And, and like air which we can breathe in or air that we, can, we live in, so is Jesus within us. And he somehow comes in us and takes us over and lives our lives for us. Some have described it like a psychological union. That is, two people who have common interests and common desires and ideals. But that's a little too loose of a connection. Some see it as a sacramental Union. That is that, that as I take in the elements and the sacraments, I am receiving literally the body and blood of Christ. But again, these miss the idea completely. And others have tried to uh, look at it from a biblical perspective, but, the, but they end up trying to narrow it too, too, uh, too, too much. They end up trying to simplify it to one simple idea or one thought. But, but being in Christ encompasses a whole range of ideas and meanings. It's made up of several elements which not only focus on me as an individual, but us as a body, which incorporate events that have happened in the past, that are happening now, and that will happen in the future. Being in Christ describes both an inner experience and an outer action. In Christ explains a sphere that God works in and an agency of that work. There is much to it, but essentially it is this. It is a positional and experiential reality that has been brought about in the plan of the Father through the life of the death and the resurrection of the Son, and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when these two words are placed together in Christ, it represents a host of truths that God is at work in history and humanity. So this morning we're going to consider three aspects of what it means to be in Christ. Three aspects that if you think upon them, dwell upon them, and, and hopefully I'm going to have, try to help us understand them better, as you focus on them, they will transform your Christian life. These three aspects are this. One, what you have in Christ. Two, who you are in Christ. And the third as- aspect will be how you live in Christ. Let's first consider what you have in Christ. Before we do that, we need to recognize one thing. As a human... When you were born, the Bible describes you as being in someone else. You are first in Adam. Before Jesus, we were all in Adam, which meant we were all in trouble. Right? Because what did our father Adam do? Yes, in fine fashion, he chose to rebel against God, to sin against him, bringing sin into the world. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Thank you very much, Father Adam. He brought sin into the world as a result. I am now, uh, have a nature of sin. As a result, there are consequences for that sin. And we are all connected to him. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two says, For as in Adam all die. Adam was our head, our representative. And in a sense, when he sinned, we sinned in him. And he passed on that sinful nature to you and to me. Right as David says in Psalm 51, 5, In sin, my mother conceived me. Born in sin, we are enslaved to it, suffering the consequences of it, not only in this life with physical death, but in eternity with spiritual death. But Jesus, who is called the second Adam, changed all of that. 
Romans 5.18 tells us, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Paul's speaking there and saying, In Adam we die, but in Christ we live. In Adam we are slaves to sin. In Christ, we are freed from it. In Adam, we stand condemned before God, but in Christ, we are made righteous. One act in the garden was revoked by one act on the cross. One man's refusal to follow God's will under the tree was annulled by one man's acceptance of God's will upon a tree. In Adam, we are doomed. In Christ, we are saved. That one event, that one event... Jesus living and dying upon a cross changed everything. Being in Christ means that we now have a new head. If you're his child, if you've placed your faith in him, if you have turned from your sin and trusted Christ for salvation, then you are now in him and not in Adam anymore. You are identified with Christ and not with Adam. And the scope of that event encompasses more than just each individual. It's more than just your eternal destiny or our eternal destiny. The scope of that event covers the entire universe. Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, we looked at that a few weeks ago. The Father made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In Christ, he's speaking there, repeats in Christ twice to talk about and mention the fact that not only is your history changed, but all of history has changed. He's brought about change as God's plan has been revealed. In Christ, all creation will be restored under God's rule. In Christ, all of his enemies will be destroyed. So much more than than our individual salvation has happened. You remember when God made the universe, right? Day six, what did he say? Behold, it was... Very good, right? But then Adam came along and he changed the course of history. But then Jesus came along and he changed the course of history. He became a man, lived a perfect life, gave his life as a payment for sin to rescue the human race from death and to restore God's reign upon his creation. And not only did Jesus change the course of history in that event, But he did change the course of our history, of your history and mine. And Paul, in this passage, in verses 3 to 14, is discussing, he is, uh, I can't even think of the word, but he's, he's, he's pouring forth, he is bringing it out and bringing together all the different things that have been done for us in Christ. And what that accomplished in our lives and in our salvation. And that's why he repeats it over and over and over, in him, in whom, in Christ. In fact, let me just list out for you in Ephesians what Paul says about what we have in Christ. I'll put the references on our website, but just listen. In Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, you have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Through Christ, you have been adopted as sons. In the beloved, God's grace is freely bestowed on you. In Christ, you have redemption. In Christ, you have forgiveness. In Him you have an eternal inheritance. In Him you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you are secure. In Christ you are made alive. You are raised up with Him. You are seated with Him in the heavenlies. In Christ you have been created for good works. In Christ you have been brought near to God. 
In Christ, you are now made a community and part of a a group of people who are loving God and serving one another. In Christ, you now have the messianic promises. In Christ, you now have direct access to God. You know, if you called up the White House today and, and tried to make an appointment with the president, what do you think would happen? Do you think he'd be able to get on his calendar? You know, only about 2,000 people actually even get to go tour the White House. There's no way you'd see the president. But any time, any place, we're invited into the throne room of God to have direct access to him. That is in Christ. He has brought that about. Romans 6.23 says that in Christ you have eternal life. Philippians 4.19 says that in Christ God will supply all your riches according to his glory. Philippians 4, 7 says that in Christ, through prayer, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Philippians 4, 13 says, I can do all things in Christ. That's the literal translation, in Christ who strengthens me. You know, I don't know how many things are on this list, but everything's on it. In Christ, you have everything. He's held nothing back. And to think about this is incredible. Not only what you have in Christ, but think about what you have apart from Him. The Bible says apart from Christ, we're not under God's blessing, but His curse. Scripture says that apart from Him, we're not forgiven, but condemned. Apart from Christ, we are dead in sin. Apart from Him, we have no true reconciliation with Him, no true peace with others, no true unity, no true ability to have joy and peace with one another. Apart from Christ, we have no access to God. God would not hear our prayers. Apart from Christ, we are children of wrath with Satan as our father. Apart from him, we are doomed to hell. Separation for eternity from God. Apart from Christ, we were far from him. Ephesians says, we had no hope and we were without God in the world. Apart from Christ, things are pretty hopeless. We need to ponder these things for a minute. Not only in what we would not have if we're apart from Him, but what you do have being in Him. It is incredible and unfathomable to think about what we have in Christ. And has has God withheld anything from us, from His children? Is there more things within His storehouse and His treasure box that He's decided, I'm not going to bestow those on my children. Is there anything that, that God has more that he could give. I'm not hearing anything, people. Is there anything else? Has God withheld anything from you? No, in Christ you've been given it all. He's held nothing back. We have all of it. Forgiveness, eternal life, true peace, fellowship with God, grace, access to God, unity, love, joy, peace, all of it. All of it is poured out upon us and it's all in Christ. To be in Christ means that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We hear that phrase so much. We've read it several times. But do you sit and think about it? Ponder that for a moment. Being in Christ means we have been given essentially everything. And not only that, not only has our destiny been changed in Christ, not only have we received much from God in Christ, but you have also been changed in Christ. And that's the second thing I want us to focus on is what you are now in Christ, who you are in Christ. The second point is so important to grasp because I think 
Many of us, if not all of us as believers, can get caught up in sinful patterns in our lives, can we not? We get in these situations where we're struggling with sin. We can't seem to break free. We feel like we're in bondage to it. We desperately want to stop. I remember talking with a guy just in tears saying, Help me, please. Help me. I can't get out of this. I can't break free. Have you been there? I have. You know, we know what God's word says. We try to obey it. We try to follow it. But then we we go back to that same sin. We go back to that same struggle. And we're more frustrated than ever, more discouraged than ever. and, And we can't even lift our heads or go back to God again and confess that sin. We're so ashamed. You tired of that? You want to break free from it? Well, knowing who you are in Christ is the key. Knowing what God has done in you and how he has changed you is the answer. You're different now. You're different now. We're going to look at three differences that have taken place because of who you are in Christ. And these differences are what you need to be reminding of yourselves constantly as you battle sin. For we still do struggle with sin. The first difference is that your master is different. Your master is different. That phrase, in Christ, uh, it it was used often in uh, Scripture several times. It's used just to refer to the person as a believer. Uh, 1 Peter, the end of 1 Peter says, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. The very first verse of Ephesians says, To the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Romans 16, 7, Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junius, who were also in Christ before me. So we can see in these passages, the idea of being in Christ is, is a reference to us as believers. It's a term to refer to a Christian. And to think, if you think about it, to be described in, as in Christ really, really is a, a fundamental identity of the believer, right? Because it's saying, I'm no longer an Adam. I am in Christ now. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I now have a sign that's posted on me that says, under new management. Things have changed. You have a new master now. And that's what Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 were talking about. That it declares that we were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit who's been given to us for the purpose of our being God's own possession. Ephesians 1 7 says that that purchase cost Jesus his life. In him we have redemption through his blood. That means Jesus by the purchase uh, by his own blood purchased us out of slavery. Slavery to sin and Satan. He redeemed us. He ransomed us. He paid for us. And now we are His. We're no longer a slave to the sin. We're no longer a slave to Satan. If Romans 6.22, Paul says, We are now freed from sin and enslaved to God. The question I have is, do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as one who's been freed from sin? Or do you see yourself as one still a slave to it? Look at Romans 5 for a minute. We're, I want to w- walk through this text in a summary fashion. Romans 5 and 6. Because here Paul describes and lays out the truth about what has been changed in us. About who we are in Christ. And how that should affect our thinking. And how that should affect how we see sin in our lives. Romans 5. We referenced it a minute ago. Romans 5.19 as Paul is describing again the being in Adam and Christ, he summarizes it in this way in verse 19, chapter 5. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. 
The law came and so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See what he says there? That, that sin reigned under Adam. But what reigns now under Christ? Grace and righteousness. Folks, there's a new sheriff in town. Sin is no longer master. Sin is no longer the one in charge if you are in Christ. And Paul describes this new order in great detail in chapter 6. Look down at verse 14 of chapter 6 and see how he describes this new situation for the believer. He says, Therefore sin shall not master, be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For you were slaves of sin. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I read that whole section because I want you to see, something has changed. In Christ, something is different now. Did you notice the terms, the many terms Paul used there? Slaves, free, master. He's trying to make a point, wasn't he? He's trying to make something clear and emphatic so that we could see it clearly. Are we still slaves to sin, brothers and sisters? Are we still in bondage to it? Is sin still your master? It isn't. Otherwise, what Paul said is false. And we know that's not the case. The Bible specifically and clearly says you are now freed from sin. Paul said in verse 7, the believer is freed from sin. In verse 11, we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. In verse 14, sin shall not master or be master over you. Verse 17, you were slaves to sin. Verse 18, you've been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Could the point be any more emphatic? In Christ, you have a new master. Your old master has been defeated. Your new master is now taking control. Sin is no longer tied to you. You're no, more, no longer a slave to it. The chain's been broken. The prison door has been opened, never to be closed again. The key is lost now. And that's why... You know, reading this text, I, I really don't like the term addiction because I think it can tend to communicate that we still are a slave to sin, that we cannot escape it, that it still has binding control on us. And I understand that's what it may feel like. But listen, if you are a Christian, that bottle, that pipe, that computer, that dessert, that other person is not your, sla- not your master anymore. You're not a slave to that. 
Addiction or disease terminology is not the right thinking. And Paul's trying to get us to get the right thinking here. He's trying to get us to consider and think about and focus on what is true. Not what you feel, not what you experience. But what is true. But Tim, it doesn't seem like it. I mean, yeah, okay, I know God's my master, but I don't really see it in my life. It's not what I'm experiencing with this struggle that I have. Well, that brings us to the second important difference that you need to understand. Not only that you have a new master now, that your master is different, but also that you are different. Your nature is different. I mean, tell me, you know this verse, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. What does it say? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he has not changed at all. What's your translation say? Right? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a different creation, totally changed. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Is that passage true? It is. In Christ, you are changed. In Christ, you are new. You are different. You are reborn. And Paul looks at that, and that forms the foundation in the first several verses of chapter 6. When he, when he gets into the middle of chapter 6, he's talking about the fact that we've been freed. Well, that's based on what he said just a few verses earlier. So let's go back and look at it. Romans 6, chapter 1. It gives the foundation of what we read in verses 14 and following. And it's connected to what we just talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. This is major. You can't miss this. Paul is trying to get us to understand why we are freed from sin. Why sin is no longer master over us. Why things have changed. Because remember we talked about earlier our connection to Adam. And in Christ we're now connected to him. And that connection is deeper than I think a lot of us realize. And Paul's trying to explain that here. That you know in a very real sense when Jesus hung upon that cross. Your old self was hanging there. Your old nature, the old you, the one that was enslaved to sin, the, the nature that could not help but to sin, the old man who was dead to sin, was nailed upon that cross with Jesus. And when somebody was nailed on a cross, what happened to that individual? They died, right? Now, if there's anything that can free a person from slavery, it's death. That's exactly what's happened to your old nature. Your old nature died upon that cross. In a very real sense, God put your own sinful flesh up there as Christ died, your old you died. And then, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so you too were. But not as the old person. Not as the old self. But someone new. He says here in verse 4 that we might walk in newness of life. We've been changed. And if you're to see any progress in your battle with sin and your fight against temptation, you need to embrace and understand this picture that Paul's trying to paint. He's trying to give you an image. 
to reflect on and meditate and think about in the battle with sin, when you're tempted. This is where Paul wants you to go. He wants you to see in a very real way, you are different now. The old you has died. You need to picture this. Think about this for a minute. Picture yourself in Christ. Your old self was walking down that road to Calvary under the sentence of death. In Christ, your old self was nailed to that cross and died there. In Christ, your old man was buried within the same tomb. In Christ, you rose again as a new man, as a new woman, with a new nature. In Christ, you are transformed and you are different. And if you're like me, many of you might be thinking, well, but I don't feel different. That's not my experience. Look, feelings don't determine truth. Your experience doesn't trump Scripture. The things that you think or feel don't supersede what God has said here. You may feel different because, for one, you aren't dwelling on the right things. You aren't thinking about yourself in the way that God thinks about you, in the way that God wants you to think about yourself. He's focusing on these truths here in Romans 6 because he's trying to get us to the point that we need to reorient our thinking. We need to reorient our perspective on who we see when we look in the mirror. Not because of something in us, but because of who we are in Christ. God has left us to struggle with sin. That is true. But you are a different person now. You know, if you were to think this way, think about about what tempts you the most now. Think about the greatest struggles that you have. If you were to look at that struggle, be tempted in that struggle, you would say, you know what? I don't have to do this anymore. I'm dead to that. It would transform you. I remember... One of those aha moments in my life and, and some struggles that I had one day looking at things I shouldn't be looking at. And then it hit me. I don't need to be looking at this. I'm dead to that. Oh, it was a freeing reality that my old man was into that stuff. And that old guy's dead. He is gone. I'm changed now. God has put his spirit within me so that I'm dead. To that. I don't have to do that anymore. The chain's been broken. I can walk away. You need to tell yourself that in the midst of temptation. You need to wake up with that thought in your mind and preach it to yourself. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm going to live that way. Tell yourself that. You know, picture this. Let me give you another image. Paul's is better, but I'll try this one out. Picture yourself like an old aquarium. Anyone have an aquarium? There are fish in it? Still alive? That's pretty good, huh? First service, no one had a live fish in an aquarium. See, that's what happens. Aquariums are really tombs for fish. I remember one time, uh, my son, he was about three years old, he, he wanted to help out his sisters. We had these fish that supposedly could, um, could under, undergo anything. They, they were survivors. Well, he decided to clean out their fish bowl. Really sweet. So he brings it in there. He puts the fish in this other container. And then he cleans out the fish bowl and he puts hot water in it. My daughters came home to dead fish. And the poor guy, he felt terrible until he flushed him down the toilet. He thought that was cool. But that's what aquariums are. The old aquarium, the fish die in it, you get rid of it. You put it out in the backyard. It's full of rocks and mud and dirt and it's useless. That's our old man. But in Christ, God takes takes that old tank. He cleans it out, gets rid of the rocks and the dirt, and he puts fresh water in it so that it can support life. And yes, there's some algae in there. We still do struggle with sin, but you're different now. You're the new tank. 
You're not the old one in the backyard, useless and having no, no worth. You're a new tank now. And praise God, we have the Holy Spirit that functions as a filter in our life to help us clean out that algae. And someday it'll be totally gone. Perfectly clean tank, either in death or if we're raptured. That's coming soon. But you need to tell yourself this. I'm not this old tank anymore. You need to remember it. You need to preach it to yourself. You need to consistently and constantly tell yourself that you are a new creation. Now, I'm not saying for you to stand in the mirror and say, you're different, you're different, you're different. But it's close to that. Because God says it here. Paul, over and over and over again, is trying to emphasize this point of being in Christ means you have a new master. You have a new nature. And thirdly, you have a new standing before God. Your standing before Him has changed. Because Paul understands, you know what, if you go to chapter 7, he knows what it's like to have algae in the tank. He describes it in clear detail. He describes the frustration and the struggle of, of knowing the thing that he should be doing, but doing the other thing. Doing the thing he knows he shouldn't be, and he, and he struggles with it. In fact, he summarizes it in verse 21, chapter 7. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? (laughs) Paul understands the struggle. And this is the Apostle Paul. But he faces the same things you and I face. And Paul says here, you know, I know what's right and I want to do the right thing. But I keep finding myself doing the opposite. And it frustrates me to no end. It's like a dead body hanging on me. Who's going to get rid of it for me? And we see the glorious answer in verse 25, don't we? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that I'm in Christ, things are different now. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore... There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Yes, we battle with sin and yes, we struggle with it. But we're never going to stand before God and be condemned for it because we're in Christ. Things have changed now. Things are different now. Your standing before God is different. In our struggle with sin, we can find great comfort in this truth. We should find great comfort in it. Because again, God doesn't look at you and condemn you. He looks at you and sees who? Sees Jesus now. If you're in Christ. Just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5, right? He says that in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And I know we hear this verse often, but again, we need to stop and ponder and think about that a minute. This is an amazing truth, that if you're in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Him, if you've turned from your sin and placed your trust in the cross of Christ to save you and and said, I believe in you and I want to follow you and confess Him as Lord, then Jesus takes Your punishment on himself. God treats Christ in the way that you deserve to be treated. And he treats you in the way that Christ deserved to be treated. 
Jesus is the one who suffers the full wrath of God, not you. Jesus is the one who is tormented and separated from God, not you. Jesus is the one who is shamed and rejected, not you. And that all happened so that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. That means that, that Christ's righteousness, His perfect life was imputed or credited to you. So that when God looks at you, His child, He sees Jesus. We can't hear that enough, can we? In Christ, we got the best deal ever. <laughs> A deal that can't be beat. Jesus gets the consequences for my sin, and I get the rewards for His righteousness. You're not going to find a better deal out there, folks. It's an amazing trade. <laughs> and Paul talks about, there's two ways that, that picture this. That, that being in Christ, he has two descriptions in Galatians 3, uh, 27, where he says, For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This idea of baptism here is not, he's not talking about water baptism, but just the, the idea of immersion. We've been immersed in Christ. We've been enveloped by Him. It's kind of like baptism. When you go under the water, what do you see now? When a person's underneath the water, you only see the water. You don't see the person anymore. That's the picture of being baptized into Christ. Or Paul uses another image there in Galatians 3.27, that we're clothed with Christ, that we put on garments around us. So what you see are the garments and not the person. Thankfully. In Christ, it is to be Him that that clothes us. You know, I was at um, uh, Burbank Burroughs football game a few months ago, uh, where Burbank lost again. Uh, I know I'm supposed to be impartial, but my, my kids are at Burbank, so I'm hoping we'll get a victory here soon. But in any case, I'm sitting there, and uh, there's a kid in front of me a couple rows, actually a kid from Calvary, who shall remain nameless. And this guy had a full-body spandex suit on. In Burroughs, fine colors. And uh, he was wearing it, but this thing also had a hood. And so what he'd do is he, sometimes during the game, he would zip the, the suit all the way up over his face. So you couldn't see anything but this spandex bodysuit. And that kind of really is the picture here, except for the spandex, of being in Christ. That we're fully covered by him. That all that God sees when he looks at you is Jesus. Completely. There's no, there's no shred of you being exposed. It's all Christ. You as his child are seen as his beloved son. And that's why when we stand before him, immersed in Jesus, clothed with Jesus, we don't stand condemned. There's no guilt, no sin, past, present, or future that God will hold against his children. And brothers and sisters... I hope at this point it's at least sinking in a little bit that how different you are and all that's changed with being in Christ. Everything has been transformed. Your master is different. Your nature is different. Your standing before God is different. These truths cannot be taken lightly. And I would encourage you to do this. You need to write them down on a, a note card and keep it with you. Keep it in your pocket or in your purse. You need to have another note card written with the same things on your nightstand. So that when you wake up in the morning, you pull that thing. I'm, I'm being literal here. You need to have that there to remind yourself constantly. I'm different now in Jesus. Because Satan and the world and our own flesh will try to convince you otherwise. But you need to tell yourself, remind yourself, and meditate on the fact that I am new in Christ. 
Preach it to yourself. We don't preach enough to ourselves. We listen too much to ourselves. Proclaim the truth to yourself. Memorize Romans 8.1, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Romans 6, 6 and 7. Meditate on those things when you're in the car. Don't listen to junk on the radio. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ. Arm yourself so that you can withstand temptation. I think we're a lot of times like the soldier who, who uh, he's in the middle, midst of a battle and he picks up the rifle to shoot it. Nothing comes out, so he gives up. He throws the rifle on the ground. <clears throat> when the whole time he's got ammunition right in his pocket. That's us, I think, a lot. The ammo's right here. Take it out and use it. God's given us many bullets and these bullets are, you're different now. You're changed now. You're standing before me is different now. Shoot that thing. Kill that sin. The bullets are there. God has amply supplied you. Don't put down your weapon. This knowledge is so important because when we think about and meditate on who we are in Christ, it affects how we live for Christ. Right? As a man thinks within himself, so he is. So think about yourself as God thinks of you. Because it will impact what you do. Who you are impacts what you do. And that brings us to our third and final point, briefly, how to live, how you live in Christ. How you live in Christ. Being in Christ is not passive. It's not just a state or a position. It is that, but it is more than that. And it's not, uh, being in Christ is not like the Christian easy chair. You know, knowing what I have in Christ, knowing who I am in Christ, serves as a motivation to respond for Christ. This is really the argument of the whole letter of Ephesians. Right in the hinge verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat or urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That therefore is going back to what? First three chapters, right? Because of all that he said in those first three chapters, therefore, respond in this way. Well, three quarters of all the references that he gives to in Christ or in him or in the Lord are in those first three chapters. See, Paul's trying to lay a foundation in our thinking and our understanding. And then knowing that and meditating on that and realizing that we would respond in action. We would respond by walking, by living according to what we are, according to who we are. Ephesians 5.8, Paul says the point succinctly where he says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You're different now. Live like it. This act of grace is so fundamental to the Christian life. I think Paul articulates it well in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live, I live In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, Paul Paul is describing there the connection between being in Christ and living for him. John also describes that in in his epistles and in his uh, gospel about being in Christ. And he uses a term that that is different, that emphasizes a, a different aspect of being in Christ. He uses the term abide. He says to abide in him. That idea of abide is to remain with, to live with, to dwell with, to be in communion with. You remember his analogy in John 15, right? With the disciples, not long before he was taken captive, he tells them, I am a vine and you are the branches, right? 
Then he says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here Jesus commands us to abide in him. Abiding in him is not some, it's not some mystical experience that we passively partake in. It's an active pursuit of communion with Christ. It is to be in Christ with legs and feet. And doing that, Jesus promises what? If you abide in me, then you will bear much fruit. But if you don't abide in me, you will bear none. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That doesn't mean that he's saying there that you can no longer be in Christ. He's speaking to believers there. But what he's saying is the blessings of being in Christ are hindered. The fellowship is not experienced. The work God desires to to do in you is quenched. So the question becomes, well, what does it mean then to abide in Christ? How do I do that? If it's something I'm commanded to pursue, then what do I do? Well, it's effectively this. It is to orient your life so that you remain in close fellowship with Jesus. It is to do things that will cultivate pursuing communion with him all the time. It's to keep him in your mind and heart. It's to consider him in all circumstances, to not leave him out of your life. And I have one question for you. Is your life oriented around abiding in Jesus? How is your day structured? Think about your schedule each day. Is it structured to keep your thoughts on him? How much of your conversation throughout the day is with Jesus? How often does he hear from you? How often do you talk with him? What comes to your mind in those moments of temptation or trial? Panic or do you abide in Christ? Talk to him. What about the decisions that come up up with you every day? Big ones or small ones? Is Jesus a part of those? You know, some of you doing your taxes, you consult an expert, don't you? Especially it gets more complicated. Our lives are pretty complicated. We can't solve it on our own. We need to go talk to the expert. In every situation. Is he part of your conversation with others? How much of your week is given to be with his people? Essentially, abiding in Christ means that does he consume you? Is Jesus your obsession, really? To abide with him is is not to relegate him to a daily 10-minute devotion, prayer before meals, and coming to church on Sunday. That's not abiding in Jesus. Where is he the rest of the week? Then you'll be able to answer the question of whether or not you abide in him. You know, there, there's so much here. <clears throat> Being in Christ is, is so involved, and I know I've, I've probably even scratched the surface, I think, but I just wanted you to, to really try to reflect on and think about a few things in regards to that, that, that your master is different now, that your nature is different, that what God has given you in Christ is vast and amazing, who you are in Christ And how to live in Christ. You see, God made in Christ a plan of history before history. And Jesus carried out that plan in history. And the Spirit makes it effective in your history. Being in Christ involves our position before God, our blessings from God, and our living with God. Remember this great doctrine of Christ isn't just so narrow to focus only on your soul. Our souls are part of it, praise the Lord. But it's not just that. 
Being in Christ encompasses the destiny of the entire universe. One author said this, Being in Christ, we are part of a new movement by His grace, a movement rolling on toward the new heaven and the new earth, where all things are made right and where He is all in all. See, really, in Christ could function as the focal point of the entire universe, of all of creation. It's centered around Him. And as part of that program, you have been blessed with all that you need in Him. You have been changed. You have been made a new creation. You have been born again. You have now an abiding relationship with Him. Being in Christ means that Jesus is more than an acquaintance. He's, he's more than a, a friend, more than a relative, more than even a spouse. He is your life. Let's pray to Him. Oh, Father, I, I know that um, it's impossible really to plumb the depths of all that it means to be in Christ. It, it is so vast that it's difficult to get our arms around it. But, but you have given us much instruction from your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we've reflected on these three aspects of what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ and how to live in Christ, that you might use these truths to, to transform us. Help us, God. I know we all struggle with sin, Lord, and, and some of us are, are struggling mighty in it. And we feel defeated and we can't escape. I pray, Lord, that, that these truths would, would free our minds and hearts, Lord, so that we could look at sin differently, so that we could see it as you want us to see it, so that we could recognize the victory over sin that Christ accomplished, that he is our master now. I pray, God, you would use your word by your spirit to to change us, to transform us, to release us, Lord, from the guilt and and the shame that, that we feel in our struggle with sin, to give us the strength and grace to battle temptation for your glory and honor. We thank you that you have made us in Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.